Welcome, welcome, welcome. What's happening, y'all? Welcome back. We are now on episode 33 of the Fire This Time podcast. My name is Sonny Ture. I'm Akita G. And we are so happy to welcome you back. You know, we good, we good, we good, and we hope you good. You know what I'm saying? We've been away for a little bit, but uh, we back this time. Uh, we trying to keep, you know, you warm, you know, winter's coming. You know what I'm saying? The chill is starting to settle in now, and, you know, the sun ain't shining as hard as it once was. So, you know, we're going to try to be here and uh, make it happen for you. It's never too early to get prepared for the for the winter. I keep talking to that's how I prepare when it's time. Long underwear. When it's, when See, it's time. I, I put the thermals on. It's how I stay warm. Stay in layers. You know, especially in the Midwest. But, uh, yes, we thank you again for being back with us. And We got, um, we got a couple of topics to uh, talk about today. We're going to be talking a little bit about the uh, some of the news about the supply chain. Also, we're going to talk about the recent MacArthur Genius Award winners. Uh, two of them in particular. Uh... Ibram Kendi and Kianga Yamata Taylor. Uh, but besides that, why don't you go and kick it off uh, with uh, this week's fire, Aki? This week's fire is a good one. This week's fire right here is one of the movies that helped turn me on. They just released it and put it on, or re-released it and put it on Netflix, and that is Sankofa. If you get a chance, check it out. It's remastered, you know. I think I got it on VHS somewhere. You know, I just ain't got the VCR to make it happen. <laughs> so I'm definitely going to be checking it out again. It is a classic movie for anybody who wants to, you know what I'm saying, get a a, 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 a semi-dose of um, good movie quality on the subject of slavery mm-hmm. um, and, the, and those entrapments and the things that our people had to go to mm-hmm. and go through in that. So... Um, so help me out. You you might know how to pronounce the name if I fuck it up. Uh, Haley Jerima is the uh, director of the film, and I get that right. I always know Jerima. Jerima. Yeah. All right, bet, bet, bet. Oh, we gonna roll with that. So Jerima is the director of the film. Also important to know about this film is it relied on a lot of black dollars. Yeah. You know what I'm saying this is not a, a film that was supported, put on by white Hollywood. And so what do you get from a film that's not reliant on white Hollywood? You get real African resistance. Yeah. And it's multiple forms. Mm-hmm. Right, Aki? Yes. And it's do. funny, that's actually how we met. I was giving a lecture in the community mm-hmm. on different forms of slave resistance. And mm-hmm. a lot of those that we talked about that night was featured in this film. Yeah. Talking about the cultural resistance, everyday mm-hmm. type of resistance during yeah. uh, the labor itself. Talk about uh, running away. Yeah. Maroonage. Yeah. And straight up physical fighting it out getting Re- down getting down resistance yeah so multiple forms of resistance shown in this film uh for those that don't know just a little uh introduction to the plot a uh model is visiting uh i believe it's the elmina slave castle in ghana yeah and uh you know she's flaunting her beauty the surface level mm-hmm. the individualistic at the slave castle with this white photographer with her right she gets walked up on by the ancestors hmm. You know what I'm saying? And transported back in time. Came back for her. You know what I'm saying? So I, we'll just leave it there. But uh, it's a film about and that starts off in the modern day with the model, but then we're transported back. So that's a you know that's a way of taking the viewers, us you know us, back to that time through what we're obsessed with in our time. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? It's told through the main character 
and what she suffers from, the Europeanization that she suffers from, you know what I'm saying, that we all suffer from, you know what I'm saying, we, we transport it back to a time and uh, yeah, it's it's a it's a thrilling journey. I can honestly say that about this film. I mean, the whole to the totality of the movie is pretty much in the term Sankofa. Mm-hmm. Going back to the past, taking what you from the past and going forward. Yeah. And that's what it was. You know what I'm saying? She went on that journey, that Sankofa journey that we all that at some point got to go through in our minds at least. You know what I'm saying? To get us back on track. Look at what our ancestors went through, and then from there, we track through the future. You don't know where you're coming from. You ain't going to know where the hell you're going. At all. At all. But um, to the next subject, which is something we all need to be paying attention to, because, you know, my um, conspiracy gene kick in every now and then, and uh, you have to be a little annoyed and stuff like that. And um, lately, you know, we've been hearing a lot about all these supply chain shortages and shit. Mm-hmm. Key, you know what I'm saying? People ain't getting their stuff on time. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I work in a logistics business, and I can say that I even know that there are back orders on things. Um, especially when I've um, been in this business for a minute, and I know how it looks at this time of the year for you know what I'm saying flow to come through facilities and uh I ain't seeing it you know I ain't seeing it people standing around normally we ain't standing around we don't see people standing around at this time so um yeah you know it's been a sort of uh supply chain shortages on food mhm um price hikes mhm on food you know so it's also an inflation going on right now too so but, w- yeah we watched a little uh program on uh, CNBC on YouTube about it just to refresh ourselves because we've been getting the tidbits of information here and there. And the mainstream news ain't really covering it, uh, you know, probably because they don't want to induce panic like we seen last year, panic buying. But, yeah, I mean, it's a serious problem, y'all, the supply chain supply chain induced inflation. Mm. So that's what we getting on the, on the shelves of the yeah. stores, right? But, I mean, just to kind of take it back a step and let's look at, I mean, they was talking about the ports, Mm. You know, that we actually import in goods uh, a lot of times from China into. Yeah. Uh, 40% of U.S. imports are done in the L.A., Long Beach area. Yeah. The ports the, there. Yeah, only beat, yeah. And uh, they're facing record-breaking uh, wait times and delays I as mean, far as being being able to take in product <clears throat> and, and process it. So you have literally now dozens of steamboats filled with shipping containers. Yeah. Right? that are, are sitting out there and, uh, you know, th- those goods, you know, th- we don't, they don't even really plan on full relief coming until at least 2023. Mm. You know what I'm saying? So for some of this congestion and you got to yeah. think there's no other way besides a port yeah. fit with that technology to unload these boats and, and process these shipping containers. Yeah. It's not an easy solution to it or 90, alternative really. About, about 75 to 80 percent of the product that we get here in the United States comes on a ship. Literally. Mm-hmm. It ain't flu. It's, it comes mainly two ways to you. Either on a ship across seas or on a truck. So, and, and even the, the, the trucking industry and that supply, they're having issues right now because they're not able to get drivers. Right. 
So you got, yeah, a labor shortage with, uh, I'm sure it's somewhat related to what they pay, but also COVID and lockdown. And, yeah. you know, a lot of the labor pool shifting and, you know, what, what's been yeah. going down. But uh, just to give a few more numbers, Aki, on the on-time arrival of cargo ships is at 10% and is usually at 70%. Damn, that's it. So, again, the on-time arrival of cargo ships to the port them itself is only 10% of those ships is making it on time right now compared to what's the usual, the usual shipping health. I forget the term they use for mm-hmm. it. Uh, at 70%. You got short-haul rates. I, I think that's domestic truck yeah, transports. That's, yeah, that's domestic. Is, uh, the, the rates of that are up 33%, I think, from $2 to $3. Yeah. So if that goes up another dollar, we're looking at a... You know, or another dollar or two dollars. You know, we're looking at a du- uh, a double, doubling of that cost. And with that trucking, you gotta also look at that with gas. Oh yeah, it comes from that also that gas hike that we've been feeling lately. Mm-hmm. No facts on that. Facts on that. Uh, there's also a shipping container shortage. Wow. So the stuff that they tra- use to put the goods into to get on the shipping containers and be processed at the ports, they have a, a shortage of shipping containers. So they can't even put shit in. They don't got shit to put shit in. That, bruh. <laughs> it's a, it's a, multi, a multi-layer problem. You bruh. know what I'm saying? This, this comes in levels. Okay. So uh, shortage of computer chips. And, you know, this is hurting. I'm, I'm sure niggas trying to get their PS5s. You know what I'm saying? They iPhone 13s and stuff. You know what I'm saying? iPad, iPad 13s. But also for even production, uh, a lot of a lot of the like those type of items is are not manufactured here exactly but automobiles are yeah and uh so a lot of the car plants are now facing uh cuts so yeah big cuts so they're estimating that 7.1 million vehicles that were planned to be produced in the u.s are going to be cut from product from production here in the u.s mm. and that's a severe uh cut to 7.1 million vehicles cut from what we gonna ship domestically and, and abroad, you know that's a that's a big cut for the workers there. I think they they talked about some plants that had multiple shifts are now just only gonna do the morning shift. Yeah, that and that's a cut right there. That means it ain't nothing coming through. Yeah, that means that they it was tired of niggas standing around. <laughs> you know what I'm saying on the job like like they deserve <laughs> to sometimes. Free but. money, bro. <laughs> you know how we be sitting on You know Shoot man But you but you can play man I gotta do something man You better sit your ass there It's free money Exactly Work slower You know what I'm saying <laughs> I, 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 Bro I never forget <laughs> My first day working At a factory in Evansville I was working at Ameriquil And we was putting together The uh, MRE Meals Ready yeah. to eat meals For like the military And stuff like that You know yeah. what I'm saying A private company That was you know Hired by I guess the government To do that Yeah Man, my first day on the job, brother had it turn to me. It's like you you can't you can't work that hard. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You you moving to you moving faster than you got to. You know what I'm saying? That's real talk. And uh, I know exactly what he means. <laughs> it stuck with me. I'm gonna tell you why. You wanna know why? Tell me. Cause if you work too fast and you get shit done too fast, this in your ass home. Yep. They trying to get their hours. Yeah, and also I mean you want to work at a pace that's comfortable for everybody, where you gonna get the work you got to get done. Yeah, you, you got to be there for eight hours anyways. Well, let's be real. You fresh, you coming in, oh, you're right. new. You're trying to impress. You're trying to show your grit. You know what right. I'm saying? I'm in here. I'm in here. I get it. I'm in here getting it. I'm doing it. I'm making meals. I'm making all types of stuff. 
But wisdom. <laughs> no, fact, it was wisdom. And I was a temp while I was working there. I was a temp. That's that temp. That's why I said that's yeah. what I said that about that. They'll send you they send you home. Yeah, exactly. You exactly. Know? You don't yeah, and as a temp, the divide between the temps and the and the and the people actually hired, you know what I'm saying? It's that's for another show. But yeah. I mean that that's a insidious part of this economy and labor pool right I now. I call it the modern day sharecropper. Mm. That's mm. how I feel it is. Modern day sharecropper. They ain't mm. in the fields doing it no more. Now we doing it with temp agencies. Yep. Get yep. about two, three dollars off your check. Yep. Yeah, with no benefits. But with you no benefits. but you but you doing the hard job. Yeah. Yeah. And that's another thing too. We, they was talking about. They were saying that they don't even have some. To some extent, they don't have the the people to actually unload the truck. So mm-hmm. it's not just the trucks, the, the the drivers to transport the trucks out of there and in. It's also the forklift drivers. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? The men they got to operate the big equipment that takes those trailers down and things like that. Which I'm like, okay, then we well, want y'all just go ahead and do some job training to some brothers. Mm-hmm. And they'll go in there and do that for you. But you know, I'm talking about it look like logs out there in Long Beach and LA Forge right now. The ship's sitting out there. Mm-hmm. So, so you got know, ships, yep. That means, you know, that, that, that that's what black folks, man, we got to take it back to, you know what I'm saying, what we know how to do best in this country, which is survive. Hey, how many of them ships you think got the, uh, the cocaine on there? As far you know, so, who was it? J.P. Morgan. One, <laughs> one of these ships was sitting on the port, I think, on the East Coast, <laughs> and they got caught with all this cocaine in there, and, and uh, none came of it. So I'm just over here thinking, like, some of these people not just waiting for their goods and products. Oh you know man, what I'm saying? Some, some of these folks is, is transporting, and, I, and I, I'm talking about these American companies, you know, what I'm saying, yeah. or, or banks. You know, they they engage in illegal shit too. Yeah, because see, people don't people don't know some of these ships is high tech. They look old, rusty, mm-hmm. but literally, there's nobody steering that ship. That mm. ship is steered like, com- like computer. Mm-hmm. It's it's in steered. It's they have one ship in front of them going, and then it'd be like four or five of them behind it. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So the, the technology has changed. Not all ships are like that, mm-hmm. but if you look out there, you just look like a big old floating, with just ship stacked on top of each other. Twenty, 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 twenty up. Man, shoot, somebody going in there to get their stuff or simple and plain. They don't have to go that route. Hmm. You know? Yeah. I mean, when it come down to... They skip the line or something like that. Yeah, well, you already know. Yeah, skip the line and then you already know, man, in the United States, America, and drugs, you can go land, sea, and air. Yeah. Ain't nothing restricted in in, in America. In in that sense, they like to take in all the devilish stuff. (laughs) So, you know what I'm saying? They want it all in the country. That's just how they function, and that's how they operate. All right. So, so y'all don't think I'm tripping. This is uh, from CNN Business. <laughs> uh, this was 2019, July 10, 2019. Cargo ship owned by J.P. Morgan Chase seized by U.S. with 20 tons of cocaine. God dang. We took, bruh, that... It just reading it again blows my mind. Twenty tons flowing the street when they when you get the number to, when you when, see first of all tons ain't even like that's 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 going in a big weight. You talk about like an Egyptian block, an Egyptian block. Mm mm mm. Yeah, bro. It, it, it just kind of surprising. Who who like, who at the U.S. Customs made that disappear? No, no, no. Made that mistake. You wasn't supposed to find that. <laughs> if, if, J, if J.P. Morgan got 20 tons of cocaine on the ship and you a U.S. Customs agent, you're not supposed to find that. I'm just going to keep it real. I don't think that person's lying. <laughs> they, not working. They, not, they didn't get no promotion because yeah. of that. I know, yeah. Look, 
Fucker, you did this? <laughs> is you crazy? Did you know who ship that was? I mean, shoot, man. Uh, you know, hey, you can't put nothing past this U.S. at all. You know, we we live in the United States, man. You can't put nothing past this government. They do a lot of different things out here. That we gotta wait for a few more of these old white people to die, cause they be admitting the craziest shit on their deathbed. <laughs> well, I, one of the I think it was one of Reagan's underlings was talking about yeah the drug war, yeah. the war on drugs. Yeah, that was just to fuck up black yeah. folk. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the woman that uh you know lied on Emmett Till, yeah, admitted that shit on yeah. her deathbed, didn't she? Yeah, yeah. A couple more of these old white people die, we gonna get some old uh, revelations. <laughs> shit. Some of them just admitted old. We got the we got the one white woman that uh, admitted to the uh, you know the one that was um, over what Vanity Fair. What she do? She was the one that admitted that they were selling uh, people a dream. Mm. Oh yeah. Selling women a dream. You know what I'm saying? Everybody admits stuff that they do. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? The sales stuff. But I be hearing some crazy stories just about people that work in like nursing homes and hospices. <laughs> that, that working with some of these old white people that just start getting senile, just start talking about their past. Like, no, bro, let me tell you something. I worked in an old folks' home one time, I keep, mm-hmm. and you'll be surprised what they'll tell you. And, bro, you'll see this sweet old woman, always nice, always smiling, always respectable. And you know what you find out? What's that? She was selling it for some change back in the day. Mm. Damn. Some of them, they would get into that, their, their Alzheimer's would kick in, and they would go back into that mode. Whether it be gangsters, doctors, um, you know, whatever. You know what I'm saying? So, man, and then they just start telling you stuff. You know, one dude was telling me about how he ran moonshine. Found out he knew my grandmama. Weird shit. Uh. <laughs> He's like, I'm like, well, grandma running moonshine? Nah, she wasn't running moonshine or nothing like that. Nah, 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 nah. She was just at the juke joint. <laughs> you know, they ain't going to tell you what your people's doing. Right. You know what I'm saying? They ain't going to tell you what your people's doing. But, um, yeah, man. You know what I'm saying? So, uh, it's real shit out here right now, y'all. We got to be aware of everything right now, man. Facts. We got to be aware of everything. Hey, before we move on to this MacArthur Award winner, we didn't warn y'all. We're going to talk about this at the top of the show. But there's this New York Times article just came out. Uh, let me get, let me pull it up right real quick. This shit is crazy because we done talked about police killings before on this, you know, on this podcast. But listen to this, y'all. This is the headline. Y'all can Google it yourself. More than half of police killings are mislabeled. New study finds. More than half of police killings are mislabeled. New study finds. Now, currently, Facebook is. Uh, is uh is down right now or else i would go on my facebook page and look at the quote i posted along with the article but and also this problem is coinciding with now i can't read any more new york times article unless i pay some money so uh we can't read from the article (laughs) but uh what it says though is that listen one more time more than half of police killings are mislabeled that means the numbers that say for washington post they collect the uh, the reported numbers from the police, right? What do what do we? That means uh, the undercount there is the, they undercount shit for by more than half. Like so, so there'd be over twice as many police killings that we'd be knowledgeable about just looking at the statistics, mm-hmm. right? If the reporting was done right. So this yeah. bombshell report is saying that 
there's really twice as many police killings going on. Mm. So, I mean, before on the show, many episodes, we talk about the number of police killings. Yeah. Uh, how black men figure into those statistics. Yeah. And, you know, we're always horrified by the number. But just to think that that number... And I, even when we're talking about it then, we always said it was an undercount. I think, but, I think black folks always knew that our interaction with the pigs, they always count the numbers low. Mm-hmm. They always... They, they all... It's just a, a common... Uh, it's in the nature of the system... To do that, alter numbers. And you know? even, oh, it doesn't seem like it's that much. It's not that much. Even nah, this new revision is probably low. It's definitely low. Probably low. Definitely. You know what I'm saying? Because I hate to say it, it's plenty of people that you, that you, if you if you'd have been in the streets deep enough, you felt that the police probably had something to do with their death. Mm. Because I mean, they could do it and get away with it. You know, um, even though I, most cases. We try to be as respectful as we can around the police because we don't want the heat. You know what I'm saying? You know, you might have a sack in your pocket or something like that, and you don't need to hassle, you know? But, um, yeah, that sounded about right. Mm. That sounded about right. You know what I'm saying? The Rodney King situation was going on long before it was filmed. Mm-hmm. Black folks over there knew it. NWA was talking about it back in 87. Mm-hmm. So, you know what I'm saying? And it, nothing really changed from it between that time a, until recently, you know, until the 2000s when, you know, um, I don't want to say the BLM movement. Mm-hmm. I don't want to say that uh, the BLM movement arose, but uh, the the movement arose around Michael Brown. Right. You know, so um, it's definitely something, man, we got to still be vigilant on. But then it's like, too, we got to start taking these numbers ourselves. We got to get better with this apparatus thing. You know, we got to get better with functioning better, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I, I share your uh, confusion about how to describe that political moment for black people, mm-hmm. the the rise of BLM, because we already know. We was in the streets when Trayvon Martin happened. Mm-hmm. You know, we were speaking out when Troy Davis was executed by the state. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So, uh but yeah, I mean, and on that note, uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about black politics, black political theory. Now, as we, you know, take a closer look at two of the MacArthur Award Genius Grant Award winners. So the MacArthur Foundation is a philanthropist foundation, $7 billion endowment. Uh, John, uh, I think it's John T. or John D. MacArthur. Yeah, and his wife. That's what the the foundation is named after. He was a, a real estate and insurance uh, man. Yeah, you know, uh, mon- monopolizer. Yeah, there we go, monopolizer. Right. Uh, yeah, that's a good term. He bought up other insurance companies and conglomerate and had a conglomeration of insurance and then invested in real estate. Got his millions and millions up. Not yeah. well, I guess billions. Yeah. Uh, so MacArthur Foundation got a seven billy endowment and uh like other white philanthropist organizations you know what i'm saying they help set the standard in mainstream society about what ideas what paths what ideologies what technologies and so forth that people should pay attention to mm-hmm. and that are worthy of consideration if not seen as elite yeah. and seen as uh, exceptional in a positive manner. Yeah. White philanthropists, white liberal institutions, white, you know, white institutions generally 
you know, have the power to do so. And, yeah. and that's been the case for a long time now. I mean, you always have to definitely recognize that fact and always remember something. They got a definite reason for us to even question them either. Even on that. I mean, I should say it like this. Anytime you associate yourself with dogs, you're going to catch fleas. Hmm. Lie down, dog. You catch fleas. And so they, they collude and run the same parties of other people who have been known to do this, especially people who have been known to do it in this current era and time. Right. So, I mean, MacArthur Foundation, you can Google it. They, are, they partner with the Ford Foundation. You got to have money to do that. So me and Akiba Photoshop, we looking for some dirt at the MacArthur Foundation, running a little bit late with our research. But, you know, once we've seen that they partner with the Ford Foundation, it gives us a good idea about, you know what I'm saying, that they run and move how we've already described them they, to run and move. They probably thinking the same camp. You know, they oh, probably yeah. running in the same camp. Now, for those that don't know about the Ford Foundation, which does similar acts as far as how they award grants, yeah. the Ford Foundation is historically known to seek the de-radicalization, the denationalization, you know what I'm mm. saying? If you think about a revolutionary nationalist type of ideology mm. of the black movement, the black yeah. movement for liberation. Yeah. We can look at this clearly. There have been multiple books about it. Uh, what's one? From Black Power to Black Studies. Uh, and even, you know, one of these uh, award runners talked about one of the, the black student movements. Even Kendi mm. has a book about the black student movement that doesn't maybe deal as... Uh, you know, specifically with uh, black uh, black studies, but with the movement generally. Uh, but the point here is that the Ford Foundation, just to quickly summarize, the Ford Foundation, once they saw black students around the country pushing for change on, in the academic campus environment, and many of these black students were black nationalists, as, you know, they tended to be yeah. in the 60s and, and early 70s. Yeah. And they were pushing for autonomous, self-determined black academic institutions, right? Yeah. That were serving the needs of the black community. Yeah. So did uh, so as you can imagine, potential potential black studies or African American studies departments around the country yeah. wrote to the MacArthur program for grants. I mean, I'm mm. sorry, to the Ford Foundation for grants. Mm. And the Ford Foundation, the grants that they were given were enough to get the the studies the the department off the ground yeah. to get the black studies department up, off the ground in multiple locations, right? Mm. Now, did the Ford Foundation fund those grant applications that mentioned self-determination, nationalism, uh, community-centered, uh, you know what I'm saying? Or did they fund those that were speaking about black studies more as something to bring about equality yeah. and integrating hmm. uh, this knowledge into the, uh, the university generally? A similar ideology. Assimilation is right. Yeah. Which ones did the Ford Foundation lean towards? The you know assimilation. What I'm saying? More, more of the assimilation. Now, I don't mean to cast the programs and the applications how they were written as strictly or completely assimilationist. No, but they, just can't, by, they were they were generally wrote by nationalists. Right, but I'm speaking relative to the applications that were explicitly, you know, community driven yeah. and more nationalist yeah. and more more. Uh, authentic and organic expressions of the black power mm. era that birthed it. Yeah. Right? Those got denied completely. Yeah. Not a single one approved by the Ford Foundation. Especially by Ford. So this is, we, we mentioned all this to show how white institutions, even white philanthropist institutions, that seem on the surface mm -hmm. to be doing good, are actually behind the surface, under the surface, I should say, 
you know, directing and, and empowering what they see as right. But with, and that, that typically means a de-radicalization and a uh, misleading of our people and what is seen as representations of the power and, you know, uh, and brilliance yeah. of, of our movement. Intellectual, intellectual brilliance and right. power. That they highlight those that uh, make white people comfortable, you know. I mean, at the end of the day, it come down to this good old adage: follow the money, follow the money, <laughs> follow the money. Right then, you can find out. And not all black studies programs were like that. Some of the some of the founders and the, the people that fought in the early years were able to slide into, you know, spots and tenures, um, in their local communities. And in black HBCUs, but at the same time, some of them, you know, black study departments was taken over by these, you know, um, I like to say ops. Right. Another good book on this is uh, by Nola Way Rooks. It's called White Money, Black Power. It talks about the history of African-American studies is often told as a heroic tale with compelling images of black power and passionate African-American students. Let me see if I can find the rest of this description. Hold on. Uh, I don't know if I can. All right, sorry. But, yeah, I mean, basically, like we said, another good book on that is by Rooks. It's called White Money, Black Power. And uh, it speaks about the same issue that we're describing here. Uh, but, you know, just, just to bring it back to the MacArthur Foundation. So the MacArthur Foundation partners with the Ford Foundation, which has this history, right? So the MacArthur Foundation, who did they choose you know, from the outgrowth of, you know, this n new black intelligentsia that arose with the Black Lives Matter movement in this era of intersectionality, right? Uh, they choose two people that we're going to be highlighting today, one being Ibram Kendi, the other being Kianga Yamata Taylor, right? So uh, where to even start? I mean, why don't we start with Ibram Kendi, okay? He's a brother that uh, at... Uh, American University runs that uh, Institute for Anti-Racist Education. I could be messing up them names. <laughs> uh, you know, the, speci the specific names of these institutions Institute in the department. Anti-Racism. Right. It's something about anti-racist uh, education or the Institute for Anti-Racism. Well, they can anti -racism. be an uh, expert on that, right? Yeah. I mean, he got described by Joanne Reed on, I think, MSNBC mm. as the foremost anti-racist intellectual. You know, um, wow. Take it how you want to. Yeah, that's, uh, that's some special shit. So, <laughs> do do we think that Ibram Kendi represents the uh, the ideas of black nationalism, the ideas that we are uh, a colonized people, which was foundational to even the book Black Power, written by Stokely Carmichael, right, and yeah. Hamilton. That book is where we get the first instance of institutional racism being defined. Yeah. And this is also where the the idea that we're a colony, that black people in America are a colony, is laid out in this book called Black Power, right? Yeah. Uh, do they fall in line with that type of thinking, though? Ibram Kendi and Taylor? No, they don't fall in line with that type of thinking, but they don't come from that grain. Not at all. Even, even while appearing on the outside, on the surface, mm -hmm. to be radical, to be the... Uh, the evolution 
of everything that came before, right? I mean, I, I don't even know, Aki. It's like, it's other people putting them there, and it's like they taking it. But, like, I lo I'm looking at them, they, nah, ain't none of that with them. I, I'm not speaking from our point of view, yeah. but I'm, I'm speaking from what white philanthropists, this oh, white, yeah. this oh, white yeah. machine is intending Hell to yeah. instill among us i mean when you when you when you paint the history of black power without painting it with the colonial context you can't even paint the history and speak on the history and then even when you even when you okay she takes it and she says well that was how it was then but that was wrong mm -hmm. you know um this brother right here believes that white people are not inherently racist You don't understand then what we're fighting against. Yeah, I think for me, he's missing. Europeans are not inherently white. Whiteness is, uh, yeah. you know, it's a social, economic, political product yeah, of, uh, you know, uh, you know, this pan-European movement and fervor that yeah. arose. You know, what I'm saying at the birth of capitalism or, yeah. or concurrently with capitalism. He's a, he, I, I think he's a little just off. You know. Um, and I mean, the people they have wrecked to, to speak for us, they don't really speak for us. Right. Now, even Kianga Yamata Taylor on page 196. Did I bring the book with me? No, I don't have it in here, so forget it. Even, But I'll give you the page number. On page <laughs> 196 in her book, uh, From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation, you know, uh, Yamata Taylor saves her theorization around black liberation and black politics. Right in the black condition towards the end of the book, you don't get none of that until page one ninety six and, and around there, right? That chapter, that last chapter. But here, she lays out where the colonial thesis came from, but says, uh, you know, clearly that she rejects the colonial theory of black oppression of the black condition. She says, even though Stokely Carmichael and Hamilton said these things in this book, even though Malcolm X utilize this anti-colonial thesis to draw us closer to the uh, struggles of the third world going on at the time and to bring us in concert with these liberation struggles around the glo globe, these national liberation struggles around the globe. Taylor says we are not colonized. And she makes up this phony-ass comparison about uh, just the, uh, without numbers, without any scientific analysis, mm. says... Uh, the wealth extracted from the black underclass in uh, urban America was not uh, the the vehicle or the engine of uh, American capitalism. Like yeah. you, you know, what I'm saying like, but that doesn't explain. You know, what I'm saying that doesn't even meet the uh, the the layout of the colonial thesis by yeah. people like Robert Allen in his mm -hmm. book uh, Black Awakening in Capitalist America. Yeah. Doesn't lay out how the colony thesis, the internal colony thesis, is is laid out by people like Stokely Carmichael and Hamilton. Yeah, it doesn't meet. It it, it doesn't even try to take it up. You know, I, I encourage people to go read it. Uh, but so, you know, so even so, with Taylor, you know, we we have this also. Before I get going, I keep I got to say something else about this book. <laughs> this book, you know, it deals with the Black Lives Matter movement. And what they did in places like Ferguson. Yeah. Without critiquing the Black Lives Matter movement at all for disrupting the grassroots uh organizing that was happening in Ferguson and other Already. places. Already. It doesn't she doesn't take up at all how the liberal media chose the Black Lives Matter movement. You know what I'm saying? Didn't they get money from the Ford Foundation? Yes, they did. Uh, great point, Aki. 
BLM be getting money from the Ford Foundation and these yeah. white philanthropist groups. So is there is there a critique of that in in her book? Nah, not a large not a large enough one, See, if any. In, in this era and time, you can be a black nationalist, or not say a black nationalist, but a black activist, and take money from them. Right. You know, and literally take money from them, and it's supposed to be all right. Nobody's supposed to question you. Follow so, the money. Exactly. Follow the money, Yaki. So numerous awards for this book, numerous more opportunities came Taylor's way because of this book. And this is at the same time that grassroots chapters of BLM across the nation are drawing back from the national leadership yeah. and rejecting the national leadership as being totalitarian, mm -hmm. despite having three black queer women leaders. Or I think two uh, two of them identify that way. Yeah, I think But uh, three black women, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Despite their, their identity, they're engaged in totalitarianism within the organization. But they're taking white money within the organization uh, yeah. uh, as part of their political organizing. Might be buying cribs and stuff with and, white money. I don't know. I ain't going to say that. But also biased against the nationalist, separatist, yeah. self-determination focused politics of the black power era. That's why you during that time all we got from people was this, as, this ain't your grandfather's civil rights movement. Yeah, you know, but what came out of the civil rights movement? Why don't you ever talk, compare yourself to the Black Power movement? Yeah, because you don't even want to take up and confront the idea that we're a colonized people. That that's yeah. what that's what undergirded theoretically, ideologically, the Black Power era. That you know, mm. this is more than just inequality. Yeah. We're a colonized people. Kendi and Taylor only want to talk about inequality. You can't live comfortable when you have to take the stance. That a nationalist has to take and truly live according to it, and get that type of money. You can't live that type of life, and you know, and do that. You got to make choices in that. Um, their denial of our colonial state is a denial of our existence. See, they believe that they believe that the civil rights movement ended the racial issue. And so now we now we dealing with this uh, this class and you know the issue of inequality and stuff like that. No, the race issue is still the same because what they, she got to remember is that the United States, the United States government as a white supremacy apparatus, is fundamentally racist. Endemically it's, racist. Yeah, it's in it's in the Constitution. It's in the laws. It's in the way the laws issue. It's in the way they do things. State, local. And federal, it's inherently racist. So, and th that's an idea that helped found critical race theory, as Derrick Bell put it out, right? Mm -hmm. Derrick Bell, the original critical race theorist, not Kimberly Crenshaw, you know, he was inspired by the Black Power movement yeah. and the internal colonial thesis that came out of the Black Power movement, hey, right? And what did Joy Reid say uh, when uh, she had a boy, what's his name, Kenyaga? No, uh, uh, Ibram Kendi. Yeah, she said, she say, well, he says, well, I can't really speak on critical race theory because I'm not a lawyer and I don't study law. I'm like, well, critical race theory ain't just limited to law. At all. You know what I'm saying? It started from the study of law, but that was the study of institutional racism, too. And, I mean, Derrick Bell used multiple disciplines to explore critical and, and for critical race theory. He wrote yeah. fiction books, a series of three of them. You should read them. Yeah. You know, that, that delve into the topic. 
I mean, even Tommy Curry and his use of critical race theory, he uses it. He uses more from a philosophical. Exactly. You know what I'm saying? Philosophical thought and and think and intellectual level. You know what I'm saying? So it it, it comes in very different ways. Yeah. I mean, the social sciences, uh, you know, have, a lot of the social sciences have a place for yeah. critical race theory, and that was his intention. Yeah. You know, uh, in, in creating it and forwarding it the way that he did. Uh, but with like you said, Ibram Kendi, he can't call himself a critical race theorist. You know, he it, it was a cop out. You know, him saying, "Oh, because I didn't go to a law school, so I can't call myself a critical race theorist." Mm-hmm. It's funny that you have two black people, supposedly, you know, leaders, intellectual of our people. Yeah, one in the media, one in the academy, but neither one can accurately describe what critical race theory is. Yeah, and that's Even terrible. When, when, when questioned about the subject on national TV, for for it to be so hot of a topic. Now, it's it's crazy. See, like I wish Derek Bell, because Derek Bell is not living, you know, and I wish he still was here. So, because this is a big controversy now with critical race theory, you figured as a, as a journalist, you would get sharp at least on it if you're gonna be asking people about it, you know. But most people get critical race theory wrong. They try to make critical race theory watered down. They water it down, and they do it in a way where they can avoid. Any talk about black nationalism. Well, they water it down, too, because they don't want to get to the conclusion. Well, Kimberly Crenshaw said this year, I think another MSNBC art, uh, interview, right, a video interview, mm. she said uh, critical race theory is about making America better. <laughs> you know? Uh, no, 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 I no. mean, even even Keanu Yamata Taylor was on her TED Talk talking about America must change. These are questions, you know, how are we still here after the civil rights movement? These are questions that they're asking mm-hmm. that are answered by critical race theory yeah. and uh, anti-colonial theory mm-hmm. in general, you know. But it, th- since they deny that the internal colonial thesis, and they do so, I, I would say more so ideologically and politically more than they do intellectually. Yeah, you know. Uh, but I mean, it, it comes out when you look at the contours here. Yeah, I mean, um, that's why we got to start. We have. That's when it comes back down to our, us having our own institution. And demon who we want to speak for us. Um, their ideology, the way they spoke, sound very integrationist. Mm-hmm. I'm not even going to say integrationist. They already did that. Assimilationist. Mm-hmm. You know, um, they seem to believe in America. They seem to believe in America. Um, but they still want to try to, you know, say that they, you know, uh, Fighting for the struggle, you know, fighting for the people. They they look at the relationship between white supremacy and capitalism differently than somebody with an anti-colonial theory. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Like capitalism is like, a tool of white supremacy, and I uh, use it. This critique is especially for Taylor, mm-hmm. because they, you know, what I'm saying like you read in in her book if you if you get it, page 196 and forward, she rejects the internal colonial thesis mm-hmm. and then pushes. Just uh, a critique of capitalism. Yeah, you know, uh, we're not colonized; we're just oppressed by capitalism. That's typically how socialists go. You know, that definitely can bring you closer to the white left. Yeah, because the white left, white Marxists, they don't want to hear nothing. Yeah, about uh, you said it right. National liberation. White left. You, they don't want to hear nothing about national liberation for black people. Yeah, you know, they don't want to hear nothing about that. I mean, it's like this: nationalism at its at, at its root is even just rooted in the peoplehood and that means a certain level of behavior culture. So, yeah culture so you know what I'm saying um, 
the peoplehood, I don't even think she, I don't even think they really advocate for that. They, they want the American idea, the melting pot. They, these types, they don't have nothing to say about the cultural revolution that needs to take place uh, within black America, the cultural transformation of black America, the consciousness raising of black America. Well, because they, they believe, in the culture, yeah. they believe in American culture. Mm-hmm. They believe in the United States American culture, the, the culture that the United States or, or uh, founding fathers wanted to make um, that melting pot of different groups from different places into this mesh pod of things and that such nature, which most other groups ain't going for. You know what I'm saying? Um, yeah. You know, um... That's why they don't have that view. They can't take the nationalist view. They can't take, you know, as I say, this is always about survival. You know, us existing and existing better in the future than we are now. And um, they got to want that. And if they want the American dream, then they ain't going to want that. And that's why they put these people up, because these people right here give them that vision. Mm -hmm. He's an educated Negro. He knows. They, and they really try to confuse or obfuscate around what racism, white supremacy, and colonialism really means for black folk here in these borders. You know, and they, they seek to deny and run away from what's already so close and so apparent mm. to us in the black working class, underclass, whatever. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, so I would say people like Tommy Curry probably at the forefront of anti-colonial theory yeah. right now. Uh, mm-hmm. Especially when looking at the what's going on in the U.S. Uh, amongst black people. Yeah. And uh, one thing that he he gave uh, some talks in 2020 that spoke about racism as a misandric aggression. Mm-hmm. You know, when we look at uh, the who, who the police are murdering. Yeah. You know, in the 99th percentile. Yeah. You know, uh, having a theori- a theoretical framework that potentially understands racism as a misandric aggression, of course, that hurts the whole black community. But I think that that type of exploration is something that scares off, you know, black people from taking it up because they know that their white partners, whether they be economic, social or intimate. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? They don't want to hear nothing about that. They don't want to hear nothing about uh, that really exposes the truth about uh, the fear that they feel uh, towards black men. Yeah, you know, because uh, it's fear driven. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying at, at a philosophical level. Yeah, you know that Curry talks about. I mean, if we just counted the European, uh, just just government's crimes against the black male by his, by himself, they'll probably have to give us half the country. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? We were the first to be brought over here. Um, I mean, you see it. You see it. How this country is working itself. When we talked about it on the Fanon episode, mm-hmm. but this society, in a sick, insidious way, in an untrue way, but on its face, it's saying this: mm-hmm. black women will accept you if you leave the man behind. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, that's not true across the board, but that's something being pushed in these last days. Yeah, and the, the thing about it is, though, it's not. That's what they don't they don't get that that's a lie. Some don't get it. Yeah, some don't get it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, cause, yeah, some don't get it that that's a lie. I mean, I, I think a lot of our sisters 
Yeah, yeah, they get it. They they like y'all. I ain't on that. But yeah, it's something that don't get it. And <laughs> you got to look at his history. You know, you look at your history. Your history is working. He's done it before. So, you know, yep. It's not gonna be somebody taking you into the sparkly future or anything of that such nature. But, you know, that's how that's how the system works against other communities too. It does that. It goes inside. It infiltrates. It makes the tension between the men and the women. And then, just to rehash it, I mean, Fanon talks about this in the first chapter of uh, toward the African Revolution. That the chapter entitled uh, Algeria Unveiled. And he talks about how the first act of colonial warfare, of colonial violence from the oppressor is to target the women with propaganda that uh, basically casts out and marginalizes the African man and raises up the essence attached to African femininity as a way to infiltrate you know, he calls this the the he calls this the first act of combat, and he he speaks about it in this gender type way, how women are targeted with propaganda for assimilation. For uh, so uh, yeah, I, you're right. This is how systems work. This is how colonial systems work. Across the board, you see it like this. You know, and we gotta warm up to talking about it like this, because this is not the in any way to you know marginalize the real harms and gendered racism that black women face mm. african women face across the globe yeah but uh you know this is just an attempt to apply some type of scientific rendering of what's going on uh that our communities is really feeling well you know i think you know the black the black the african-american male and female are under attack right now right um this covid is doing a lot of damage you know uh, about 50% of the homeless community that you see is sprouting up everywhere is black. You know, um, if the social services and the, um, pretty much if the welfare state drops through, um, falls through, the bottom drops out, you know, that, that number can go up. There's not certain times period. We're talking about shortages and shit like that. If nothing else, the black man and the black woman needs each other. And the way they figure it is if they keep you separated, that's two households that's been formed that could have been one. It's always about money and getting the bag with them. So, you know, as a community, we've come out better forming our families, forming our communities, building them up, moving on, you know, um, and building with a future. You know, building with a, a future in mind, doing that Sankofa process. All this shit they throw as distractions. But the problem is, is that we start taking this shit on now. You know, we we didn't start taking all these different foreign-ass ideologies on and stuff like that. I was just reading that article in there when it was talking about the uh, intersectionality. 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 God damn it, what is going on with me today in my words? Hmm. Intersectionality. And, um, you know, we got a question where we getting these things from. Because mm -hmm. we don't know where we're getting this shit from now. And now anybody can get on on a, on a mic, on a TV, and they can speak and use some big fancy words. And it's like black people just get soaked up. Like it's the gospel, you mm -hmm. know. It's like that with street preachers. It's like that with intellectuals. Um, we just got to get, I think we're a little wiser now. 
but we done got distracted. Mm-hmm. You know, when we had Trump up in there, we was all crazy. We, oh, you said, you know, now we didn't got Trump out, we got Biden. We think we got some rule and breeze from that. We get back on the same bullshit. Hmm. You know, that show you what it is. You know, comfortability. But I don't think that they're going to allow us to be too much comfortable too much longer. You know, we're going to have to step it up. You know, people get ready for the boom boom. Get ready for the real times. You know what I'm saying? And I don't know how we're going to handle it this time. But what I will say is that, you know, niggas survive. Yeah, yeah, facts. And just uh, as a comment, you know, uh, on we don't know where these we get these theories from. I want to highlight one more article by Tommy Curry. It's called Decolonizing the Intersection. This is where he provides an anti-colonial critique of intersectionality. This is something that if you call yourself an intersectional theorist, or, you know, anything like that, you know, you would do yourself a service in reading this. Need to so, send that to me, Aki. I got you. So the full title was Decolonizing the Intersection, Black Male Studies as a Critique of Intersectionality's Indebtedness to Subculture of Violence Theory, right? So he's asserting here that intersectionality is indebted and inspired intellectually and within the historiography, right, by the subculture of violence theory. The, this is uh, subculture of violence theory is you know uh, a theory that pet, uh, that has pathologized black men yeah. as inferior and violent yeah. and th these type of things right so here's a sentence from the article this uh, article argues that the understanding of black male patriarchy through violence within intersectional analyses is a product of black feminism's reliance on sub subculture of violence theory and what came to be understand as racial sexual stratification within racial minority groups. This article argues that the criminological formulation of black maleness as a threat to women explains the seemingly fixed perspective of intersectional analyses on the sexual pathology and de social deviance of black men and boys. So when we talk about how there seems to be a fixed perspective on black men and boys from yeah. intersectionality. Yeah. He's alleging that it's coming from their indebtedness, their reliance on these racist, unexamined, underexamined uh, subculture of violence theories that have weeded themselves insidiously into, you know, our way of thinking. Foreign people's way of thinking and you adopting it. It's real simple to me. It's always been that way. We got a problem with that. So then he takes up Kimberly Crenshaw, who we critiqued before. Kimberly Crenshaw who's raised up by white media as now the purveyor of all things critical race theory. Yeah. Right? But, you know, instead says critical race theory is about making America better uh, when, you know... <laughs> anyways, we, we talked about that. So, Tommy Curry continues, As such, I argue that Kimberly Crenshaw's initial formulation of intersectional analysis... Uh, she is also the founder or the coiner of intersectionality, right? Yeah that Kimberly Crenshaw's initial formulation of intersectional analysis depends on an understanding of racial patriarchy that is inextricably tied to dominance feminism's emphasis on physical violence and the crimin criminological construct of the intraracial rapist. The purpose of this essay is to understand the content of the gender category deployed within intersectional analyses that produce an understanding of black males' violence as an outgrowth of patriarchal oppression, right? 
So um, definitely a very interesting article to take up. And for me, you know, even though I read the man out before I read this article, mm. uh, definitely just uh, dri- drove home a lot of the points of the man not for me. They don't want to see Dr. Tommy Curry. No, no, not at all. <laughs> they they stay away from him. He, he, he goes to the historiography. He traces the subculture of violence theory, its emergence, and mm. white social science. Yep. It's ties to black feminism from the the first people that was using it. Yeah, you know he traces it through bell hooks even. Yeah, you know who is 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 rampant with it when she uh talk on her book on black men and boys. Yeah, uh so uh you know you can see all the highlights I got in here, Aki, all different colors, the whole mm-hmm. article. You know what I'm saying? So definitely uh, a worthy one to check out, y'all, uh, and really you know drive some a lot of the points that we talked about here. So if y'all want a link to the article, you can hit me up, and I'll make sure you get it. Uh, no problem. No, no questions asked. No. Be careful of the, be careful of the people that Caesar put in front of you. Hmm. They might got a knife behind their back. Mm-hmm. You know. You're right, Aki. Now, on a final note, I don't want to leave off on this and say that Kendi and Taylor have no chance for redemption. It's doubtful, especially with the money that just got put in front of them. Five hundred thousand. You know, and. I don't necessarily Maybe six. I don't necessarily see them as the same. But as far as taking that money and the troubles that I think both of them have around the internal colonial thesis are serious. But to take it back to the beginning of our show, Aki, Ava DuVernay and her help in getting Jerima's uh Sankofa on the Netflix, right? Yeah. Uh and I forget the name of her production company that helped that deal go through. But Ava DuVernay in her film Selma. Right, mm-hmm. I thought that Selma pretty much put the nail in the coffin of what type of influencer of the people that Ava DuVernay was going to be, and yeah. I mean that in a negative sense. Yeah, because of how she cast the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee mm-hmm. as this, these rabble rouser yeah. uh, uh, black teens and, and young college students who uh, yeah. needed to be controlled by the more competent and, and patient Dr. King. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, I don't know if they introduced an original idea throughout the whole movie, especially yeah. how she did one of the foremost theor- theorists and organizers within SNCC, James Foreman. Yeah. Uh, and, and basically, you know, the, the film uh, just marginalized black liberation theory, things yeah. like black national, black separatism and those ideas that were floating around and were, yeah. you know, some of the greatest theorists. Of that time were within SNCC, mm-hmm. and uh, but that's not how that group was cast, yeah. you know. So I, I I thought that was a sign towards how she would treat, you know, black liberation, black power, and you know, black resistance throughout her career. Yeah. But her allying with Jerima and bringing Sankofa to Netflix and promoting it, putting her face next to it, mm-hmm. you know, what I'm saying that's a great sign for me. Yeah. Because there is no Kunis take on. Sankofa. Yeah. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Nah, Sankofa is now, solid. No, Sankofa will you, you Sankofa is a film that can make, you know, folks that are more on the Kunish side into, you know, potential revolutionaries as far as what it exposes through art, you know what I'm it's saying? It's only like, one other movie to me that does that. Goodbye for time. Mm. I gotta see that one too. You still ain't seen that, Aki? No, I ain't seen that one. But I mean, also Spook Who Sat by the Door. Yeah, Spook Who Sat by the Door. But good about, oh, I'm talking about movies that deal with like slavery. Oh, okay. You, yeah, you need to see that. That's, yeah, I, I need to see that one. From the 70s. I need to see that one. But Ava DuVernay, I know you ain't listening. 
But shout out to you for partnering and bringing Sankofa to Netflix and making sure that more of our people will see it who would yeah. never have seen it unless yeah. you did this. Yeah. You know, so uh, if you haven't seen Sankofa, it's one of those that you got to see. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Th- th- this goes way before Roots or anything yeah. like that. You know what I'm saying? Sankofa is a must-see because now, of the resistance it shows. Now, you say go before Roots, mean you mean better, better, serious. I mean, better more, it, it should be considered more serious and shown to our children before yeah. we show them yeah, Roots. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, yeah. like, I was raised on Roots. I mean, I ain't going to lie. When I first, I seen Roots before I seen Sankofa. Me too, yeah. Because I remember that day. The next day, me and the homies, we went to school and did some real serious anti-racist. Resistance. Yeah, resistance. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I'm sure even Kendi would be happy with, with, <laughs> you, with, with y'all. You know what I'm saying? He might have been proud of our work there. They got serious. But, yeah, I, I seen, I, as I started getting more educated, I started seeing movies deeper into that. That was more like an introduction. And I'll say this, I don't even think many people are being introduced through that movie anymore now. So, And then the new Roots is, isn't necessarily better. Mm-hmm. So um, Sankofa is definitely up there as probably the one that I would maybe check that out. Yeah, the best I've seen. The then Uncle, seen. Well, Uncle Tom's, Goodbye Uncle Tom, because that one right there is a little more graphic. It's very graphic. But with that, with that being said, though, everybody, I think we good here. I think we are. You know, I think we uh, wrapped some things up, you know, gave you some reading suggestions. You know, uh, this definitely, this episode did not help me as far as being labeled a uh, Tommy Curry fanatic or <laughs> being fixated on black male studies. But, uh, you know, wh- who, I can't lie and say, you know, I don't identify Tommy Curry as one of the foremost anti-colonial theorists. And we all need to, you know, get much more in tune with anti-colonial theory, especially the black variety yeah. in he this is, day and age. He is definitely an intellectual powerhouse, you know. And uh, these other folks that they're raising up, they're not anti-colonialists because they don't yeah. even see us as being colonized. Mm-hmm. So we need some anti-colonial theory in the mix, and that's what we And push they on. can't even meet you halfway. They can't say, well, we do have some things that seem colonial-like that go on with us. They can't even meet you halfway. They just... It's sad out here, Aki. <laughs> All right. Peace, y'all. Stay up. Stay safe to the next episode. Peace. Peace.